Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. Today, God speaks to us from Psalms 33. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, every Christmas break, I end up watching uh, the full Hobbit and Lord of the Rings movies. I do it every year. And one of the things uh, I really love about the Lord of the Rings, of course, Right now I'm talking about the movies, uh, of course the books uh, are even more so the case, uh, is that there is a depth of story that is absolutely remarkable. Uh, and if you know anything about Tolkien, it was actually very much an obsession of, him, uh, of his, a lifelong obsession to not just create this one storyline that kind of exists through, um, through The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but there's a whole kind of backstory that he creates that he then funnels through uh, this one particular story. I mean, you could literally spend a, a lifetime kind of tracking with the backstories of the characters and the cultures and the history that exists within the, the Lord of the Rings saga. Uh, but regardless of the fact that there are all these different subplots, uh, all these different rabbit holes, there is still ultimately this meta-narrative that guides the whole story. I mean, the whole story is ultimately about this ring of power, and about a quest of these humble hobbits and his friends uh, to accomplish the destruction of evil. Now start there because the Bible is actually very similar in the sense that the Bible has uh, these plots and subplots. There are both these central and peripheral characters and there are rabbit holes that you can go down into and that you probably should go down into and maybe spend a lifetime going down into those various rabbit holes. But nonetheless, even though that's true, there's also this grand arc 
this grand narrative that guides the entire story of the Bible. Now today we are continuing our series called The Grand Narrative. Uh, And over the course of the series, as part of our year-long look at the book of Psalms, uh, we're looking at that broad, high-level narrative of the Bible as told in the Psalms. Uh, Something that I think is often missed when we are approaching the Bible is that the Bible is not a disjointed series of stories or commands or poems or whatever. Rather, the Bible is one unified narrative about God's redemptive work. Having said that, I would very highly encourage you to join our class starting next week because what we're going to do is actually try to help us see how that grand narrative that we're walking through over these coming weeks, how we can use that grand narrative as an interpretive tool for understanding what's going on, some of those subplots with the peripheral characters and all the different things. Right? So I very highly encourage you to join that class. But over the course of the series, what we're trying to do is take a look at the major, major chapters of the story, so to speak. Now, last week, we started with chapter 1, the important reality that the story of the Bible really does begin with God. The story of the Bible does not start with us, but rather it starts with God. That God is the creator who existed from eternity past, who will exist into eternity future. But that in his infiniteness, we also see that he created the universe, our world, us. And so today we're going to take a look at chapter 2, if you will, of God's grand narrative, and that chapter is creation. So to do so, let's consider three things. The story of creation, the mandate of creation, and the coming of new creation. So first, the story of creation. So to begin, look at uh, what the psalmist tells us in verses 6 through 9. The psalmist says this, that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, the starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. What we're seeing here is the psalmist is reminding us of God's creative power by hearkening back to the story of creation that we see in the book of Genesis. Uh, We're we're seeing here that the heavens and the stars were made by the very breath of God. The waters were put in their their place. God spoke and all came to be by his command. We cannot uh, move forward without just acknowledging the simple fact that uh, the entire Bible depends on that being true. Uh, Probably the most controversial claim of the entire Bible is actually found in Genesis 1. 1-1, that in the beginning, God created the universe. And we need to start there because, like in ancient times, there are many opinions and perspectives about the origins of all things. And if that one statement, that in the beginning, God created, if that is not true, then nothing else that we're going to talk about for the rest of the series really matters. But if it is true, we need to very much wrestle with what obviously then will come. And like... Days past, today, there are many very varying opinions about the origins of all things. I mean, consider first in, uh, the ancient, in ancient times when this would have been written. In the ancient Near East, when, when Moses would have wrote, written this uh, creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, and when the psalmist would have written these words that we just 
heard read, uh, there would have been competing opinions and beliefs about how the world came to be. Pastor Abe mentioned this uh, briefly last week, but these narratives were uh, largely viewed the establishment of the world as the result of uh, conflict amongst the gods. Uh, there were other uh, stories of the day that actually saw the universe as an unintended consequence of uh, a sex act, actually. But in essence, what you're seeing through many of those ancient stories, is that the world was established unintentionally, without any purpose, and with conflict, violence, strife, and mere survival at the center of that creation. You and I are mere accidents of forces greater than ourselves. Now today, even though we so often view ourselves as superior and far more enlightened to those of the ancient Near East and such silly stories that they used to tell themselves— Uh, The prevailing assumptions about the universe all these years later really haven't changed that much. A materialistic, humanistic, atheistic framework about the universe also rejects the notions of an intentional, creative, behind the universe. I mean, we scoff at the creation stories of the ancient Near East, but the ends are the same. Regardless of how we advance, regardless of how enlightened we think we are, the sum total of all of our human genius still leads us to the exact same place as the ancients, an unintentional universe that was developed through randomness and is also a world centered on violence, strife, and the pursuit of survival. But the creation story in Genesis, and here in Psalms, says, no, no. There is something greater and far more profound than uh, what we might see in the ancient stories, what we might see in conceptions today. There's something else at the center of creation. And at the center of creation is the one true God who created the universe not out of strife, not out of conflict, but out of love, with a transcendent purpose. But we also, we are also shown here that within God's creation— We see this in the story of Genesis 1 and 2 in particular. That in his creation, he created a special creation. That God created humanity in his image with a very unique dignity and purpose. And as a result, bringing us now to point number two, there is a particular mandate given to that special creation that we need to consider. Let's consider that, that there's a mandate in creation. So again, just quickly, go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, In the story of creation, we actually see a lot that God intended for his creation, especially humanity, that if we read that story too quickly, we actually miss out on. There's a lot that's there. You know, for one, we see God's uh, intention for relationships and community in the creation of Adam and Eve. We see his uh, intention for marriage and for sex and procreation. It all begins there. His purposes begin there. Uh, We also see, you know, one theologian points out that as humanity grows, which inevitably would, God calls them to be fruitful and to multiply. And as more and more people were to come, inevitably they would have to learn how to live with and amongst and for each other, which is essentially politics. Uh, Others point out the fact that Adam and Eve, they begin exploring the garden and start naming the animals, which is the beginning of science as they attempt to classify and articulate what's going on within God's creation. We see a cultivation through farming and through work, them utilizing the the things that God has created in order to continue on that creation. We see work 
in Genesis 1 and 2 as a creational good. That God calls us to be people that work. And God calls humanity as part of their unique calling as image bearers, ultimately to be cultivators, curators of his good creation. That that cultivation, which is the mandate of God, is part of his intentionality for humanity. And our psalm actually gives us a really interesting uh, example of that cultivation. Look at verses uh, 1 through 3. It says this. It says, I sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. It's interesting that the psalmist says that we ought to sing, they ought to play the harp and the ten-string lyre. This might sound silly and obvious, but don't take for granted what that actually required. Someone at some point discovered that if you stretch strings tight enough, they produce sound. And that that sound changes as you tighten or you loosen them. And later, someone else would discover that if you take those strings and you mount them over a sound hole of certain types of wood, that, that sound would begin to resonate and reverberate. I mean, all of these then could be used as a result of this curation, right? The raw materials out there now being curated can now be used for what we call music and song. That might not sound remarkable, but such technology and the ability to develop such technology is unique to humans because God has provided us with an ability to discover things in his good creation. This music, this is you know, speaking about music, but this actually goes far beyond just music. There are many other ways that we similarly are able to curate God's creation, develop culture and technology, and even discover the intricacies of what's going on behind God's Good creation. I mean, think about all that comes as a result of this capacity to understand the world in this way. You know, at the most basic levels, just consider the procreative power of our bodies, which are normally able to create new life with our bodies. Now, I recognize that's not unique to humanity, but what is unique to humanity is as a result of that procreative power, the ability to then establish families rooted in covenant. A covenant that is unique within God's creation. You don't see the kinds of commitments to family life in any other place except amongst humans. You know, our capacities provide us the ability to, to see the details behind God's creative work. You know, we have the uh, capacity to understand how a star is born. We can understand the atoms that collectively make up all that we know, all that we see. We can take various plants and herbs and create new flavors in our food. We can create compounds through chemistry and develop medicines that heal. We can control explosions so that our cars can move. We can comprehend the morality that exists within the universe, that reflects God's nature so that we can properly govern ourselves. And on top of that, we can record and build on centuries of knowledge that have come before us that makes modern life possible. And we know that what we possess now is being, will be built upon into the future, only furthering our knowledge and our creation, our curation of creation. What does all that mean? That means, it can mean many things, but at least one thing that it means is it means that the works of your hand are valuable. The things that you contribute as an image bearer of God to the curation of God's good creation 
matter. God has created you with the ability to curate his creation. And so whatever your work might be, whatever your hobbies or your interests might be, all the ways that you gain and attain knowledge, the ways that you even love and serve your friends and family and communities, all of it is the result of God providing you with the ability to do so. It is part of the mandate for you and for me as cultivators, curators of his good creation. And also just to state, this is not a unique thing to Christians. Right? This is an ability that's given to all humanity. You know, for just as, as an example, coming back to our psalm, the harp and the lyre in our passage, uh, archaeologists point out that the earliest evidence of the harps were found in Egypt around 2500 uh, BCE. The lyre in Mesopotamia uh, several hundred years before that. In other words, the curation of God's creation was happening outside of God's people. Again, that might sound silly, that might sound obvious, but I highlight it because God's creative work is constantly being accomplished all throughout his creation amongst all of his image bearers. The mandate for humanity to curate and to cultivate is for all people. That said, there are, though, unique insights that the Christian faith provides us about that cultivation and that curation. And there are specifically two dynamics that I want us to consider that I think maybe will clarify for us today what we ought to do with this reality that we are curators and cultivators. And the two are this. First, we need to consider the notion of worship, right? The notion of worship within this curation and cultivation mandate is pretty unique to the Christian faith because Christians ought to recognize that the utilization of what God has given to us is an act of worship as we engage it. And so as a result, we ought to desire to give God our best. If you are a Christian, whatever God has given to you, you have the opportunity to worship him through that. I mean, that's everything from procreation to cultivation to curation. I mean, look again at uh, verse 3. It says, sing to him a new song. Skill, uh, sing, or play skillfully. Sorry, sing to him a new song, play skillfully. What does that mean? Well, for one, I find it interesting that the psalmist is at least pointing out the importance of developing your skills, whatever they might be, engaging your skills and developing them. There is something about honing our skills and becoming better at what we do that is honoring to God. There is something particularly honoring to God when we invest our time and our energy to be better stewards of our skills and abilities, to play skillfully. You know, in the words of Malcolm Gladwell, to put in your 10,000 hours into something. If you don't know what that is, uh, Gladwell, he talks about how we can essentially become experts at anything if we're just willing to put in 10,000 hours to learning, developing, and growing in that area. To get to the place that we're able to play skillfully, knowing that it's an act of God. I mean, here, the, the psalmist, of course, speaking about music, but that applies to everything that we do in our curation and cultivation. Everything that we do in life gives us opportunity to glorify God by being good at what we do. Let me give you some examples. You know, even within the family, are you a husband? Are you a wife, a father, a mother? Put the time in so that you can play skillfully as such, as an act of worship before God? 
Are you a student? Put the time in to play skillfully as a student as an act of worship before God. Are you a business owner? Put the time in to ensure that you're able to play skillfully as an owner as an act of worship. Are you an employee? Put the time in to learn your skill well. Whatever that skill might be, learn it well so that you can play skillfully as an act of worship before God. Are you an artist? Put the time in so that you can play skillfully as an artist, as an act of worship before God. Be good at what you do so that you can worship God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he tells us that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And I would say, whatever God has given to you as a cultivator, as a curator, whatever your role might be in life, whatever your job or career might be, do it to the glory of God and play skillfully. Put your time in to do it well. So one, the Christian faith understands that our curation cultivation is an act of worship. The other thing that the Christian faith understands about this reality, though, is the Christian faith also understands the reality of the fall. Because the second thing that Christians recognize that occurred within our creation narrative is sin. And the fall have tainted everything. Just as an example, the procreative uh, power of our bodies, the gifts that we possess, our capacity for curation and cultivation can be certainly used to the glory of God. But they can all also be used as an act of rebellion against him as a result of, the, of sin and the fall. As an example, the good desire for sex right, built into the procreative nature of our bodies has broken down into lust and sexual exploitation. Our desire for procreation has also, as a result of sin, created brokenness within families, without covenantal bounds, without fidelity, without trust, as was intended. Our ability to understand the atom for all its good has also led to nuclear weapons. Our ability to create compounds that heal also leads us to create compounds that lead to addiction and to death. You know, our understanding of the solar system, for some, has led them to question the existence of a creator. Our desire to work and to build a career has also led us at times to exploit and use others for our gain, or to neglect our families in pursuit of success, or to climb the ladder regardless of who it might hurt. Sin has impacted everything, even our curation and cultivation. Uh, Calvin Seerveld, he's a theologian who writes about a theology of art. As he was reflecting on how sin has impacted art, he, he puts it this way, and I find it actually um, applicable to all of us, regardless of whether or not we're an artist. But he said, sin, according to the Bible, does not mean the loss of something. Let me just pause there. So in other words, the reality that sin exists does not mean that we've lost our ability to curate and to cultivate. We haven't lost something. But then he goes on and he says, sin spells perversion. There's an anti-creational, ruinous bite to the drive of sin. Sin corrupts what it titillates, dirties what it exposes, puffs up into an empty bubble that breaks what it champions. Sin wrecks everything. Sin prostitutes, wastes what could be so fresh and full of laughter. To sin is to be a fool to cramp human life into a dead end 
because it thumbs its nose against the law of God, praise me from whom all blessings flow. In other words, sin has a way of taking God's good creation and our curation and cultivation of that creation and use it as rebellion against him for our own glory. Sin corrupts everything that might otherwise have been good. Sin turns good things into ultimate things. Sin leads us to center ourselves, thus decentering God and our neighbor, as Jesus would have commanded us. So where does that then leave us? Well, here's what I think is necessary for many of us, right? There's Either you're going to maybe fall into one of these two groups or maybe both at the same time, depending on the circumstances. Some of us here, we need to hear that we need to take more seriously what God has given to us. We need to take more seriously what it means to honor and worship God with what we have, to give it our best so that we might play skillfully. Whatever it might be, put the time in to honor God with your gifts, your abilities, cultivation, curation. But some of us might need the reminder that maybe we've actually decentered God and we've sinfully allowed the works of our hands, the desires of our hearts, the good instincts to cultivate and to be cultivators in this world. We've taken that and we've used it as a way of dishonoring God in the way that we curate and cultivate. We've taken him off his throne. We've put ourselves there and everything that we do now becomes to glorify myself, to serve myself. And I think one of the reasons why we will err in one of those two areas is because often we lack a vision, a full vision of what God is doing through the curation of his creation. Meaning, I think many of us might not have a full vision of how meaningful our cultivation and curation as an act of worship is to what God is accomplishing in the long term, which brings me finally to the coming of new creation. Let me explain to you what I mean. Is that one of the reasons why I think we miss what God desires for us now is because we implicitly or maybe explicitly assume that now is all we have. We can actually lack faithfulness because we are so concerned with the present, not seeing how the present relates to the future, namely God's new creation. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we're going to have the very, one of the chapters of the story is the story of new creation. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it right now. But in sum, the Bible teaches that when Jesus returns, He's going to restore and renew all creation. That one day, all creation will be liberated from the bondage of decay, we're told. And that heaven is not a place to which we go, but rather heaven is something that comes to us. Revelation 21 speaks of a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, Zion, that descends and reunites heaven and earth. And what's interesting about this scene is that it's not a scene that describes the destruction of the world, but a redemption of it. And part of what we see in that coming of new creation is a redemption of the very things that we have curated within God's good creation. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going I'm to take a little bit of a deep dive. Stay with me, okay? Stay with me on this, because I promise, maybe for many of us, our minds are going to be blown. Here we go. So Richard Mao, he's a well-known theologian, wrote a book called When the Kings Come Marching In. In the book, he looks at Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 60. It's a very short book. I would highly recommend it if what I'm about to say is intriguing to you. But in sum, 
Isaiah is speaking of uh, the coming day when this heavenly city arrives. And in it, he describes when all the rulers and the, their riches, their cultural patterns, are all going to be gathered into that holy city and put to good use within that holy city. And in particular, Isaiah speaks of uh, the, the ships of Tarshish in uh, chapter 2 and in chapter 60. Now, these ships are described as these grand, beautiful vessels and most likely belong to the pagan peoples of the world who did not worship God. Now, here's what's fascinating. In Isaiah 2, those ships are described as lofty and proud and as a result are under judgment before God and they're destroyed. They represented how the works of our hands become ultimate things for us. But then in Isaiah 60, listen to what Isaiah says. I'll just, I'll read this for us. He says, surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to honor, uh, to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. How is it that the ships destroyed in Isaiah 2 show up now in Isaiah 60? And that not only do they show up, they've now shown up as vessels that honor the Lord. And in particular, how are condemned ships of pagan peoples filled with silver and gold now being ushered into the heavenly city? What does all that mean? What's the answer to that? Well, the answer to that question is new creation. It's a creation where all the curation and cultivation of God's world is being renewed, restored, and redeemed. Even the curation and cultivation of pagan peoples are gathered together in this city to the glory of God. And here's one conclusion that Mao makes about it. He says, if we think of the future life in terms of inhabiting a heavenly city, we have grounds for looking for some patterns of continuity between our present lives as people immersed in cultural contexts and the life to come. The Bible, I think, encourages us to think in these terms. In other words, what you do now is contributing to what God is establishing in his new creation. I don't understand that fully. I don't know what that means fully. But the curation and cultivation of your family, of your work, of your hobbies now are part of God's redemptive work in the new creation. And that ought to change. The point of what Richard now is saying is that ought to change how we view it now. That ought to bring us to a place of desiring to give our best, even as we trust that God will in the end purify and redeem our work one day. Even the cultivation of the pagans will extend into new creation. If that's the case, how much more will it be the case for those who now live to honor God in the present? And this kind of vision, my friends, that brings this infinite value to the works of our hands is made possible through the one who establishes that new creation. And he is the one who not only redeems and restores the cultivated works of humanity, but who also redeems and restores those who trust in him, thus welcoming us into that new creation as well. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks of this reality, and he says, hear this, 
that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Jesus makes it possible for us to experience this new creation. Jesus makes you, as you turn in repentance and faith to him, a new creation. Now here's what I find fascinating about that. Regardless of whether or not we trust him, regardless of whether or not we turn to him in repentance and faith, the works of your hand are going to be redeemed and brought into the new city. Even if we reject him, the works of your hand will extend into new creation. But the enjoyment of that city, the enjoyment of that renewed and restored creation of that heavenly city, the enjoyment of new creation will be for those who themselves have been made a new creation in Jesus. And so the question before us all is, are you a new creation in him? As we think about the beauty of what it will be like to be in this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, Zion, filled with um, untainted curation of what God is accomplishing through his image bearers. Are you one who will also, as a result of being a new creation, enjoy that which God pulls together, gathers together in this heavenly city? Have you turned in faith toward him, trusted him with your lives, with the works of your hands, to live in a way that honors him, worships before him? If so, those promises are yours. If not, please hear that those promises are extended to you as you trust and rest in him. And so I, my prayer would be that for all of us, we would learn what it means to become that new creation in Jesus by resting, trusting in him. And that as we do, we begin to reimagine, reshape how we think about the works of our hands now as cultivators, curators of God's good creation. May the Spirit of God lead us in that way. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the ultimate creator, the one of great power who spoke the universe into being. But we also thank you that you have created us intentionally, that we are not random, that we are not just the result of accidents, but that rather you have created us as a special creation and as a result have given us the capacity to cultivate and curate this good creation that you've provided to us. And Lord, each one of us, uh, we do that in different ways. And so God, I pray that you would first and foremost help us to see that you are desiring to make us new creations in Jesus. May we rest in him, put our faith and hope and trust in him. And as we do, would we then also have a renewed vision for what you've called us to do as curators and cultivators of this good creation of yours. May we do all that we do as an act of worship. May we pursue being good at what we do as an act of worship before you. And may we recognize that though sin has tainted everything, as we trust in you and look to you and center you as we rest in hope and trust in our Savior Jesus, that we can nonetheless still worship you well in how we cultivate and curate. Spirit of God, help us know what that looks like individually for each one of us in each one of our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.